if your income is increasing at 5% per year, that means every 14 years, your income doubles. So 28 years later, your income will be four times what it was originally. 42 years later, which is about the total working life of a, a adult, about 42 years, your income will be eight times what it was when you started. Just an eightfold increase in income is just tremendous. And so if we can help create that dynamic, if we can help generate this type of growth, I think that will lead to a big improvement in a lot of people's lives. Welcome to Ideas Untrapped, and I am your host, Toby Lawson. Ideas Untrapped is a podcast that examines the role of ideas in a political economy. It's also a podcast about spreading ideas on growth, development, and progress. Today's episode is about charter cities. I talked to Mark Lotter, the founder of Charter Cities Institute. Charter City as an idea became popular a decade ago when Nobel laureate and economist Paul Roma proposed in a TED talk that building new cities can be a viable policy tool for income growth in poor countries. The meat of the idea is that policies and political frictions in poor countries can be a barrier in the way of growth. So if you can create a new jurisdiction that will start with new rules and let people freely move in to do business, work, and build their homes, then you can raise incomes and reduce poverty. You can do this on an even bigger scale. If you build multiple cities that start with these new rules called charters. But since Roma's original proposition, the implementation of charter cities have run into some problems. Or the importance of cities as engines of growth and the rapid urbanization of people in the developing world are undeniable facts. McLotter and his team are trying to find different ways of implementing this idea and are asking many questions about his approach. I hope you enjoyed the episode and keep your feedbacks coming. Welcome to Ideas on Traps. Joining me is McLotter. McLotter is an economist. And he's the founder and executive director of Charter Cities Institute. You're welcome, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me on. Briefly, please, what are charter cities and what do they bring to economic development? Sure. So charter cities are new cities with a special jurisdiction that allows them to have a more competitive business environment. And we believe they're important because over the long run, the key determinant of economic performance, economic outcomes tends to be governance. If you have good governance, a country will do relatively well. And if you have poor governance, a country will do um, relatively poorly. The challenge can be that it's difficult to reform governance on a national level. There's a lot of special interest groups. There's a lot of politics that goes on that sometimes make the reforms uh, quite difficult to implement. And charter cities, because they're new cities, they can be built on greenfield sites where there are fewer special interests. And because they have a special jurisdiction, it can be politically feasible to implement deeper reforms than might be possible at the national level. And so these deeper reforms uh, to improve the business environment combined with a new city allow for more economic development to occur than otherwise might take place. And so if we look at the last 40, 50, 60 years, we've seen cities like Shenzhen, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Dubai emerge from practically nothing to become global metropolises. And we believe that success is replicable, particularly because there are a little under 80 million new urban residents annually. So urbanization is occurring extremely rapidly across Africa and across Asia. And we believe it's quite important to make sure that we get things right um, now because it's much harder to change uh, governance. It's much harder to change infrastructure once a city is already built. And so we believe that if we can help set up the sort of right institutions now, the right setup now, the right layout of new cities now, it can basically save a lot of headaches over the next 50, 100 years and help lift tens of millions of people out of poverty and make things better for economic development. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, I'm not new to this idea, and we've talked a couple of times about it. Thinking about charter cities, it's a big project, right? So what do you think are the effective financing structures that makes them feasible, knowing the fiscal challenges that some poor countries face? 
Sure. So the way we think about uh, charter cities is as public-private partnerships with the host country. So we're not asking the host country to build the city. We're asking the host country to help create a governance framework that can make the charter city more competitive. And we think that this is especially important now in the post-COVID world, where a lot of countries, particularly in emerging markets, might be resource dependent on oil like Nigeria or copper like Zambia. Um, and prices have rebounded somewhat over the last sort of few months. But given that they're much lower than they were a year ago, I think there is a reasonable expectation that demand will continue to be relatively low, at least until a vaccine is discovered. That means these countries have big holes in their budgets and will need new financing mechanisms. And we view charter cities as potentially one of those financing mechanisms. Uh, the charter city would have a revenue sharing agreement with the central government. They would be able to attract a lot of foreign investment, create a lot of economic activity, create a lot of jobs. And then some of that wealth that is being created would be transferred to the central government that might be able to help plug the hole that is currently being left by low commodity prices. Additionally, we just think if you build a successful city, it will generate a tremendous amount of wealth. We're still in the early charter cities phases, but um, so the specifics for financing charter cities haven't all been sort of worked out. But the general hypothesis is, look, if you create a successful functioning city, then there will be a lot of wealth that's created and you just need to capture some of that wealth that can pay for the initial infrastructure investment that can pay for the costs associated with setting up and building a city. So that's that's at least a high level of overview of how we think about financing charter cities. And I think having a high-income country act as a guarantor in a low-income country brings up some of those unpleasant historical memories that might make getting political by. The question of financing is important here because some would argue, and I think Chris Blattman has actually made this argument, that given the risks involved, that these investments may not pay off, it's actually an objection to not doing it. How do you react to that? What are the big payoffs for charter cities as opposed to other development interventions like tax transfers and other forms of aid? Sure. So it's definitely possible that for one or more charter cities, the investments will not pay off. I mean, that's the nature of an investment. They're not necessarily secure. And so there is always risk associated with investments. The risk associated with charter cities might be higher depending on where the charter city is being built, depending on what the local politics are, depending on the sort of skill of the developer. But I think I would, I guess, sort of differentiate as to what we are talking about in terms of investment. So if we are talking about cash transfers, right, cash transfers are not an investment per se. Cash transfers are a transfer of wealth. They are basically a donation. It is comparable to charity. And most of the evidence on cash transfers is relatively good, right? You give people more money, they're able to spend the money, get better things. Recent studies have suggested that this does have relatively long lasting impact on improving people's lives. So I support cash transfers. Charter cities, at least the way we at the Charter Cities Institute conceive of them, are led by private developers who are building the physical infrastructure themselves. And so this is an investment, not a donation. The expectation is if you raise several hundred million dollars to build a power plant, to build roads, <clears throat> to build water, electricity, et cetera, then you expect a return on that capital investment that can justify the risk associated with the particular project. So this is a commercial venture, not a development venture per se. And we believe that charter cities can pass this sort of commercial venture test where, okay, if people who are humanitarians want to get involved, that is great. But as a mechanism for social change, I think the profit motive tends to be important and can allow for more social change in a shorter period of time than asking everybody to change the behavior out of the goodness of their heart. That being said, there is space for, I think, donations in the Charter Cities space. The Charter Cities Institute, for example, is a 501c3. We rely on donations. We are trying to kind of incubate this Charter City space, trying to bootstrap it, creating a network of different city developers, developing a set of best practices, uh, things like that. But we have done at least internal calculations that we have published on the research portion of our website where we look at GiveWell, which is a well-known charity evaluator, and we look at GiveWell and the cost effectiveness of various charities that they evaluate. And based on some assumptions that we make about our own effectiveness, and these assumptions, I believe, are quite conservative, we are comparable to the most cost-effective charities in the world, if not more effective than them. Charter cities 
at least as an idea in its current framing, is not new. Paul Roma kind of reintroduced the idea a while back. And with implementation, Honduras, Madagascar, they've run into some problems. What are you doing differently at CCI? And how does your model differ from that proposition? Sure, and that's a good question. So Paul Romer obviously pioneered this space, but didn't have as much success as I think he would have liked. And what we've tried to do is learn from his impact and see how we could try to have a bit more success this time around. So first, let me talk about the differences with Paul Romer's model and our model for charter cities. So the similarities are both of the models involve cities with a special jurisdiction that allows them to have a different institutional framework than the rest of the country, an institutional framework that is more conducive to economic development and to growth. Those are the the, the similarities. I think the difference is uh, that Paul Romer advocated a high-income country, for example, Canada, administer a charter city in a low-income country, uh, for example, Honduras. So Canada would help create the administrative structure. They would be responsible for it. And that is the mechanism by which part of Honduras could have good governance. We have not pursued that model for, I think, two reasons. One, we're not sure it's feasible. There is a lot of blowback associated with charter cities. Um, We are sometimes accused of being neocolonialists and a little bit more difficult. The second reason we're not pursuing that model is we're not sure it is the best model, um, even if you sort of assume away the political challenges of it. So looking at, for example, the response of many countries in the West to COVID, right, the U.S. has had a relatively poor response to COVID. Our institutional capacity has somewhat decayed. We aren't as vibrant, as effective as we were 50, 60 years ago. There is a general lethargy in our own institutions, and I think that that lethargy would likely translate to helping to build new institutions in emerging markets. And so there is a question of, is the uh, high-income country the best institutional entity to help administer a charter city? And we believe it is not. And so what we do is we partner with new city developers. There are, uh, by journalist Wade Shepard, he estimates there are over 200 master plan cities being built around the world right now. So we try to partner with these new city developers, typically private entities. Sometimes they're public, but we prefer to partner with the private ones because they tend to be a little bit more uh, effective to figure out, okay, they're building a new city which might might have 100,000 residents, which might have a million residents. So we partner with them to try to improve their governance system. And this might mean working with the government to improve the special economic zone framework. If there is a relatively advanced special economic zone framework in place, we might work with the city developer to figure out, okay, what does it actually mean to create this new administrative structure from scratch? So that's the difference in our approach as to Well, I guess let me, before I go into why I think we'll be effective, I think a few other points. One, Paul Romer was quite effective at generating attention and sort of starting the conversation and working with governments, at least up to a point. And we're taking a bit more of what might be described as sort of a systematic approach. We're somewhat worried about the ecosystem of charter cities being too dependent on a single person or on a single country. So we try to diversify risk by partnering with a lot of different organizations, by working in a lot of different countries, by really helping to spread the idea of charter cities as far as possible, such that if one project goes undergoes a hard time or fails, there are other projects that we can shift our attention to to make sure the momentum for charter cities is not lost. As to, I think, why we think that we will be successful where he was unsuccessful, uh, I think we've learned a lot from him. And then in addition, I think the last 10 years, there's been a bit of an increased interest in charter cities. And then second, we're just seeing it on the ground. So we have engaged two projects where we are helping them create these legal structures, these administrative entities from scratch to govern their cities. The projects have a degree of political buy-in. We are regularly reached out to by new city developers who are interested in improving governance in their cities. We're basically at the beginning of a charter cities moment. And I think over the next year, the next two years, it will become clear to everybody who isn't paying attention now that the charter cities moment is here, that these projects are real. People are building them. People are moving dirt. People are moving in. Money is being raised, et cetera, that it's no longer just a uh, academic discussion, but it is a matter of sort of on the ground um, things happening and executing. I mean, hearing you speak, I thought of a question, which is, To a layperson, like what exactly are the channels of improvement to income and livelihood in building a new city, for example? 
Sure. So if we look at a city like Shenzhen, 40 years ago in 1980, Shenzhen was a number of small fishing villages. The total population in the area was about 100,000 residents. The average income was about $500 a year. It was a very impoverished area. And currently, Shenzhen is the manufacturing capital of the world. It has a total population of around 20 million people. They have a subway system that rivals New York. It is a sort of shining, gleaming metropolis that really transformed in just 40 years. And so while China had several sort of specific conditions that mean that the success of Shenzhen is unlikely to be replicated at that magnitude, for example, China had forced, uh, basically prevented urbanization from occurring. So there was a pent-up demand for urbanization, as well as China had very stringent regulations and laws, which had precluded a lot of economic development. And while Africa, for example, many countries have bad regulations, I'm not sure they were as bad as China in the 1980s. But that being said, we believe that a degree of that success is still possible, right? Even if you get half of Shenzhen, that's a city of 10 million people that sees their income rise by like 10, 20x over a 40-year period. That is a huge change. Uh, if you look in a lot of sub-Saharan Africa, for example, what's occurring now is called urbanization without industrialization. And this means that people are moving to cities. And typically when people move to cities, they become more productive. They are able to make more money. They live better lives. They leave their kids better off. And it's this virtual cycle. And now, unfortunately, in some parts of sub-Saharan Africa, this is not occurring. People are moving to cities, but their productivity is not increasing. They're not making more money. And their kids are going to be stuck at the same sort of level and income and quality of life that they are today. And what we believe charter cities can help do is to, I guess, help change that to help create these opportunities for these people that are currently being left behind by the global economy to create this positive dynamic, this positive feedback cycle that leads to people's incomes being increased by 5% per year, 10% per year, which because of the power of compounding interest, if your income is increasing at 5% per year, that means every 14 years, your income doubles. So 28 years later, your income will be four times what it was originally. 42 years later, which is about the total working life of a, a adult, about 42 years, your income will be eight times what it was when you started. Just an eight-fold increase in income is just tremendous. And so if we can help create that dynamic, if we can help generate this type of growth, I think that will lead to a big improvement in a lot of people's lives. Yeah, it's interesting you talked about Shenzhen. I mean, Shenzhen is usually described as a special economic zone. Is that different from charter cities or is essentially the same thing? Sure. So uh, special economic zones, we, we consider charter cities to be a subset of special economic zones. A special economic zone is just an area that says that the laws of the host country don't apply to this area or like some subset of the laws. But typically, special economic zones tend to be relatively narrow in their focus. They might only encompass an industrial park. So they might only be a few dozen or a few hundred acres. They have a relatively set degree of difference from the host country in terms of laws. So they might have lower taxes or they might have a one-stop shop, but they don't really have these deep regulatory reforms. They tend to focus on a single industry. So maybe textile manufacturing or maybe electronics. They aren't broad-based. Very rarely do special economic zones have residential. And lastly, right, they tend to be too small to generate sustained economic growth. If you have an industrial park that might be successful, that might create a lot of jobs, but that's not really going to create this dynamic positive feedback cycle like a city can. Shenzhen, while it's frequently described as a special economic zone, at least according to our definition, it is more like a charter city. The jurisdiction is 320 square kilometers, so that's the size of a city. It is multi-use. They have residential, they have commercial, they have industrial, <clears throat> they have the sort of full dynamics that you expect to see in a city with a lot of different um, economic parts moving. There was a lot of authority devolved from the central government to the city government. So while many special economic zones might only have like a tax incentives, basically in Shenzhen, with the exception of military and like uh, mail distribution, you can almost experiment with whatever you want on the Shenzhen city level. And that allowed for a lot more autonomy than most special economic zones allow. So while Shenzhen is, is sort of colloquially referred to as a special economic zone, it fits our definition in our understanding of what a charter city is a little bit more closely than most special economic zones around the world, which are quite different from Shenzhen and as such haven't had the same impact that Shenzhen has had. Two-part Shenzhen question here. 
I agree with you. Shenzhen fits better with what you are describing. I mean, there was an industrial zone in Sheku, and of course, there was the whole area that was developed for all kinds of things, tourism and, and the rest. Now, the first question is that there was a lot of planning and execution in making Shenzhen work. How does administrative capacity of the host country, how does it affect the execution of a charter city? Sure. And I think this is an important point. One of the increasing discussions in economics and international development has been focusing on state capacity, which uh, the administrative capacity of a country or a government can be thought of as, are they able to execute on tasks in a timely and effective manner? So a country with a higher state capacity would be able to build a road cheaper and more quickly than a country with a lower state capacity. And in Shenzhen, it was the local government that administered the city. China has had 3,000 years history of statehood. So they have a lot of experience and capacity with administrating cities, and they just had to adopt it to the circumstances at hand. I think one of the challenges in some emerging markets is that there isn't that long history of statehood. There isn't that long history of um, administrative capacity. And so the current governments are not being very effective in administering the entire country. So if they start to administer a charter city, you would see a similar type of dysfunction. To solve this problem, we are advocating a special jurisdiction with a separate administration from the host country. And so the city would would remain part of the host country. It would be governed by a separate bureaucratic apparatus that would have different standards for hiring, different standards for firing, different standards for promotion, etc., which would allow it to develop a more effective administration than the host country. And so to this end, we're engaged in sort of early stage discussions about helping to establish these administrative apparatuses. And we're beginning to think about what it means to develop a pipeline of administrators for a charter city, uh, about help working with educational establishments to create certificates, to create courses that might help teach you how to administer a charter city. And because this is sort of a monumental challenge, right? There's so many moving parts and you don't really want to hire people from the host country because then they bring the bad culture of the host country government. They bring the sort of, I don't know, the sclerosis that often exists in host country bureaucracies that leads to the need for charter cities. But you don't want to transplant that uh, bureaucratic dysfunction to the charter city. So you would have to basically create a new administrative system and a new education system to train those administrators. Yeah. So with the special jurisdiction, what guarantees continuity? I'm imagining that the government of the host country will still have some form of authority over that jurisdiction, however limited. And what guarantees that another administration does not come in and say, oh, yeah, well, for political reasons or whatever, we're going to withdraw our support for this Or is there a specific framework that you've outlined which guarantees long-term autonomy? Sure. Um, I'm glad you asked that question. That that is one of the challenges for charter cities. How do you ensure that there is administrative continuity in the charter city and the host country doesn't change their mind and limit some of the authority that it had previously granted to the charter city? We're seeing that, for example, right now in Hong Kong where the Chinese government is passing a national security law that many Hong Kongers believe changed the sort of terms of the agreement in 1997 when Hong Kong was transferred from the British to the Beijing government. There is no silver bullet for preventing, right? You can't do a magic trick and say, all right, there is no risk of expropriation of the charter city, but there are a number of of strategies that can be developed to mitigate that risk. And in fact, we published a outline of these strategies on our website called the Risk Mitigation Guide. It is in the reference guides, and it should give a understanding of strategies that can be taken to mitigate that risk. So basically, they're business projects. They need to be profitable. Obviously, they're political projects as well. They need to get buy-in from the host country. And so there, there are several ways to do that. First, you need to make sure that the development of the charter city itself 
as an extensive stakeholder management engagement in the planning processes. So you need to work closely with the host country at the central government. You probably want to work closely with the local government, whether it's state or provincial, to make sure that you acquire the land justly, to make sure that there is buy-in. You could, for example, offer the state or the national government an equity stake in the charter city to align the interests of the government with the charter city itself. Second, you probably want to involve business and community leaders in the charter city. Successful institutional change requires the allegiance of the ruling elite. So making sure that there is an incentive for those people who are particularly influential in the country to align with the success of the charter city is important. Third, you probably want to attract industries that create a lot of jobs. It is politically difficult to change something if a lot of jobs are being created, if a lot of investment is being had, things like this. So make it more difficult for the politicians to take action against the charter city by creating a lot of jobs, by making it successful, um, et cetera. Third, most countries in the world are signatories to a very variety of international treaties. And so if you sign a contract with the host country and they expropriate you, depending on how you draft that language, you might be able to go and sue them in an international court. And if you win, to confiscate their overseas assets. This is basically a last ditch solution. If you get to the stage, you've already lost, but it might help serve as a bit of a deterrent against the host country trying to confiscate your assets by demonstrating that there is some recourse to that action of expropriation. Um, Another strategy is to list the city on the stock exchange. So after 10 or 15 years after the city is successful, maybe you put a listing on the local stock exchange for a certain percentage of the value of the the developer who has built out the city. What does this mean? Well, this uh, oftentimes pension funds and other sort of financial managers will buy that stock. And so pension funds and these financial managers tend to be relatively politically powerful. And therefore, if their future income streams are dependent on the success of the charter city, then the host country might be less likely to take action against the charter city. And lastly, I think just to reemphasize the first point, right, it's very important to make sure charter cities are integrated with the local government and with the community, that the benefits of charter cities are being widespread. I mean, the best way, I think, to ensure that there's a minimal risk of expropriation is just to make sure that it becomes very apparent that the charter city is being successful, that's creating jobs, that everybody is being engaged and participating in the upside of a charter city. The second part question is that, I mean, I'm glad you talked about local governance. In building a charter city, I imagine there are allocative decisions that the government will have to make. You know, I mean, I compare Shenzhen to maybe some other initiative like Gorgon in India. And one thing the Chinese government had with Shenzhen is that it still maintained control over the allocation of land. And at least in my opinion, that allowed some kind of diverse development in terms of the industrial and residential developments that took place. And also in the building of public goods, in the provision of public goods generally. But what you see, at least I wouldn't call them charter cities with projects like Equa Atlantic City and others of such, is that, yes, they are planned, but maybe for financial reasons, the allocative decisions are made solely for real estate developments. Maybe that helps in recouping some of the investments. So I guess what I'm asking is, where should the allocative decisions lie to create the proper incentive for a truly income-enhancing city to develop? Sure, yeah. And I think that is an important question. And looking at Shenzhen versus Gurgaon um, in India, Gurgaon is quite interesting for the listeners who don't know. Basically, because of this sort of historical quirk, there was no government, which allowed for no zoning and land use regulations. And so a lot of tech companies and, and sort of large companies went and built offices there, advanced infrastructure there. So it has a lot of office buildings, things like that. But because there is no governing structure, the public infrastructure tends to be quite poor. So if I remember correctly, there are basically no sewers. Most of the buildings run off their own generators. So it allows for this freedom to build, but it combines that with this lack of government. While Shenzhen, the government has been relatively effective at providing public goods, at creating an open space that allows for its success. 
And I think if we look at a lot of the planned cities around the world being built today, Echo Atlantic being one example, I think you captured it well in saying that they are real estate. They're not really cities. And so real estate, you tend to define everything very carefully. It's we build a thousand houses and we sell them each for this much money and this is what the margins are, et cetera, et cetera. Well, a city is evolutionary. It's dynamic. The sort of level of planning of the city government tends to be much smaller It's not saying, right, we're going to build an apartment building here and we're going to build a commercial district here. It's trying to create the enabling conditions for growth and for success. And what we are trying to do is trying to kind of change the conversation with some of these new city developers to focus on more of a uh, inclusive model where it's aimed at a broader set of residents, where right now a lot of the new cities are aimed at sort of upper middle income or above. Um, But how can you push the price point down? So one of the projects that we are working on is a document that is tentatively called a draft master plan. What this will do is it will be a master plan for a charter city. We're thinking about having it on 30,000 acres with 1 million residents, but we're explicitly targeting an income level of $1,500 annually, which is a little under, I think, the per capita income of Nigeria. It's uh, comparable to the per capita income of Zambia, of Kenya. We're explicitly trying to develop a model where it is accessible to this broad income segment, where we're not saying these are the types of houses that people will build, but just kind of thinking about, okay, where is the infrastructure going to be? How do we attract an anchor tenant? How do we attract residents? How do we make it dynamic such that people's incomes increase over time? It's possible to build a sort of exclusive gated community where high income people go and live and work, and they end up being quite comfortable there. And I encourage people to do that. That's just not the model that we're particularly interested in. And I think it might be a good business venture, but it has limited implications for broader society. And what we're interested in is how we can help affect social change to generate economic development and to lift people out of poverty. And I think to do that, it's important to help make sure charter cities are inclusive, allow for all segments of society experience the benefits of living in a fast growing and dynamic city. A bit of a curveball, so to speak, here. There's a lot of planning involved in charter cities. Do you think that that's a challenge to a free market model of development? In a way, I mean, uh, I'm sure some market-oriented economists might not like what we are doing. Uh, I remember when I was doing my PhD at George Mason, I was chatting with this about some people, and they were like, well, how do you plan? But if we remember the Keynes versus Hayek rap video, the question is, who plans for who? So there always needs to be some level of planning, right? We do it on an individual level. We do it on a corporate level. Even government does it on some level if they're just planning for, right, how many police, how many courts, what should the military do, things like that. And so we might be taking a slightly more active role in planning than some free market economists might advocate for in terms of thinking about what the anchor tenant should be, how to attract them, how to create these sort of supply linkages. In the draft master plan that we are developing, we are thinking about basically how to create a type of industrial policy because what we want is, okay, when it starts, maybe they focus on textile manufacturing or some relatively low-skilled type of employment, but how do we make sure that there is skill transfer over time such that the city can move its way up the value chain, can create more jobs, and can have this positive dynamic to help lift people out of poverty rather than just being stuck at textile manufacturing now and then 30 years from now? That's interesting. I spoke with Garrett Jones, and one of the things he proposed that developing countries try to do is to become an attractive destination for high-skilled labor, you know, a labor quality argument of sort. Do you think charter cities can be a channel for such attraction of high-quality, high-skilled labor to developing countries, which obviously has benefits? Yeah, I think it can. Like a charter city, if developed correctly, will probably be more safe than the host country because the police will be more effective. The charter city will be more dynamic. There will be more opportunities. And so if there is a high-skilled worker who they're in their early career and want to do it abroad, or maybe their ancestors are from a country and want to sort of return and kind of give back, or maybe they're a first-generation immigrant and want to, to give back, then I think a charter city would be a probably more attractive place to live than the rest of the host country because it would be more dynamic. There would be more opportunities. It would be a more exciting place to live. That being said, I think I disagree slightly with Garrett Jones on the premise, right? You definitely want the high school workers for the knowledge transfer. It depends on exactly what he means by this. 
But Dubai, for example, was able to attract a lot of high-skilled workers, primarily from Europe, while Shenzhen developed without that many high-skilled workers. They had a lot of investment from Hong Kong, and they had a lot of managerial talent that could come from Hong Kong. So I think it's quite important to, I guess, create these linkages with different areas, different cities that can help the skills transfer process. And then you probably also want to help uh, high-skilled workers come in to fill senior administrative positions. But I think to make sure charter cities are scalable, the vast majority of the new urban residents over the next 30 years are not going to be highly skilled. They're going to be relatively impoverished, uh, coming from rural areas who aren't going to have uh, sort of the skills that we typically associate with the modern economy. And uh, I think what is important is to realize that and to create systems and processes to allow them to improve their skills, to allow them to get better, to allow them to sort of right, transform the city into somewhere that they would be proud to call home. I'm curious, what exactly made you, Mark Lotta, interested in this problem? Why did you choose to work on this? I mean, other than teaching at GMU or wherever or writing papers and other things you could have done as an academic. Sure. Well, I'm not sure I could have done that much as an academic. I'm a pretty mediocre academic. I like getting my hands dirty <laughs> a little bit more. Um, what initially got me interested, I heard a talk where uh, the speaker mentioned Michael Van Noten, who tried to start a uh, free port in Somaliland. Fun fact, there is now a free port being built in Somaliland by Dubai Ports World in Berbera. And basically what got me interested was I saw it as a idea that had massive potential that not that many people were paying attention to and talking about. And it got me really excited. And so I stayed interested in it and sort of realized that I could have a meaningful contribution to making this, I think, really exciting idea take place. And that's why I've stayed interested in it. I like things that can have a big impact. And to me, charter cities are one of the things that might be able to have the biggest impact in, in the 21st century. And so it's quite exciting to be involved. So how important is geography in the development of charter cities? I know proximity to ports is very important to facilitate trade, you know, so, but how does it really feature in your own model? Sure. So geography is obviously quite important because, uh, yeah, I mean, are you on trading routes? Is there an urbanizing population that you can draw from? What are the industries that are in the area that you can sort of help supplement? We typically think about locating a charter city as being dependent on several factors. You probably want to be within about two hours of an urban center so you can piggyback off their infrastructure because building an airport is or a port is very expensive. But if you're within two hours of them, you can acquire a large enough chunk of land to build the city because one of the challenges of building a charter city is actually getting enough land to build the city itself. But if you're two hours away, you might be able to acquire enough land but you're still close enough that you can access their airport, that you can kind of access their labor market, that you allow for a bit more trade than would take place if you were in the middle of nowhere. Like you want to be on emerging trade routes. So for example, there's a lot of activity going on in East Africa right now. A lot of people are building ports there. There might be an opportunity for a charter city there. Thinking about how new technology might change sort of migration patterns. Maybe the Hyperloop comes or maybe supersonic jets come. How does that change human sort of spatial organization? And then can you identify opportunities to locate cities because of that? Uh, there might be opportunity for a charter city, for example, in Canada or maybe in Central Asia because Siberia and, and northern Canada with global warming are going to open up and allow for more agriculture, for more natural resource extraction, uh, things like that. So there will be a demand for people to live there and a, a new city might allow for it to become sort of a gateway to those respective regions. So basically looking at how human sort of trade and human migration patterns are occurring and then trying to identify those long-term trends and then build in a place that can take advantage of those trends to become a regional hub and provide services to the broader area. Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask that question is this. Someone like Paul Roma, and I think in his paper with Brandon Fuller, would say uh, you need to build X amount of cities to take the addition we are going to see to the number of urban dwellers by the middle of the century. I think their own calculation had it about 3 billion additional people living in cities. You know, but someone like Alain Berto will say you may not really have that much quality location to do what you want to do. 
at, at least to have the kind of effect that you have in mind. So does geography, given that land is fixed, you know, does geography limit the potential of Charter City in a way? Um, yeah, it could. But this is a question that I think is dependent on on data, right? Alan says that most of the good ports have already been taken. It's probably true about that to a certain extent because humans being sort of social uh, commerce oriented mammals will tend to live in areas that are advantageous for that. So a lot of the natural ports already probably have some degree of human settlement there. And so many of the good locations for cities have probably already been taken. Have all of them been taken? Probably not. History is weird and people make decisions based on sort of contextual circumstances that might have left some potential city locations just untouched because of this weird set of historical events. So this is something that I'm certainly interested in exploring more. It's a project that I, I would like to undertake is basically hire some people and identify 50 potential locations for charter cities. Just like look at where trade is happening, where urbanization is happening, where it is possible to acquire large chunks of land and identify basically 50 of these potential charter cities locations to see, OK, is the land actually available? Is it good? Right. Like how right, how easy is it to acquire? to answer questions like that. Um, uh, so if any of your listeners are interested in helping out, uh, we can, uh, with, with, with some donations, we can actually start getting a, a sort of concrete answer to that question. For the audience, I'm going to put up links to the reference guides from the Charter City Institute on the website and every other available resource. So you wrote an article recently about America's foreign policy and how Charter City can play a role in its geopolitical competition with China, specifically the Belt and Road uh, Initiative. Do you care to expand on that point? Sure. So I think if we look at um, the U.S. in some ways still has a positive image. I mean, even with the recent sort of killing slash murder of George Floyd, uh, we saw a global outcry of that because I think people rightly hold America to a higher standard versus the, the outcry that we saw of the sort of Uyghur, basically genocide in China, where people have kind of ignored that because they expect the Chinese to do it to a certain extent. But American engagement with the rest of the world has, I think, left a little something to be desired over the last 40 years, right? Iraq was a disaster. Afghanistan is a disaster. Libya is a disaster. So... I think there's a need for rethinking American engagement, combined with the fact that China is pretty aggressively now pursuing their image on the global stage in terms of building infrastructure with Belt and Road, in terms of wooing foreign politicians, foreign leaders to get them to be China's friend. And so my article was aimed at particularly people in the, for example, the, the Development Finance Corporation in the United States to hopefully get them to see charter cities as a potential way to offer a positive influence on the world. And more specifically, I think what American engagement could look like is having Americans who can help with governance, having Americans who can't write like providing financing options if you use American contractors to help build the city, to help develop governance norms, to basically provide the supporting infrastructure for charter cities, which I think are important because right now when developing countries are looking around the world and they think, okay, what policies do we adopt? Who do we want to be like? A lot of them are thinking like, let's be like China. China has had tremendous economic growth over the last 40 years. They've lifted tens of millions of people out of poverty, which is a great thing. Um, unfortunately, at the same time, that's been coupled with a sort of lack of respect of, of human rights, with no democracy, with no freedom of speech, these things that are inimical to human flourishing. And I think because America has developed so long ago, the possibility of following a similar pattern to America's development is just outside of people's minds. And so I think what charter cities can hopefully help demonstrate is these sort of, right, we, we call them American values, but I think they're universal values of, of things like freedom, of toleration, of markets really can work for everybody and can provide an alternative development model to the one that China is currently claiming. I mean, sticking with the U.S., I know you write about it, others write about it. Are the institutional, I want to say rot. I don't know if that's the right word, uh, you know, are they as bad as some analysts say it is, especially in the light of COVID-19? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, I think rot is probably an appropriate word. We basically have coasted the last kind of 40 years off of existing institutions. We haven't really been challenged. We haven't updated any of our systems. Everybody is complacent. If you think about it, right, part of the reason is that nobody has actually helped build an institution in the U.S., Really, the most dynamic part of the economy is, is Silicon Valley because there are people there who are building new things. So people are required to a certain extent to have this like very broad set of managerial competencies that you don't need to have if you grow up. And I'm not just saying in government, right? In government, you just develop this very specific set of, of skills, but also in a lot of large private corporations, right? How many new national banks have been invented in the last like 30, 40 years? Um, and so because of that, you grow up learning a very specific set of competencies, which is okay in terms of like keeping the system going, but it means that anytime you are presented with an external shock, you just don't know how to react. And COVID was that shock, which I think exposed a lot of the existing inadequacies in the American system that people were unsure of, like unable to think outside the box. Our bureaucrats were quite skilled at figuring out how to pass the buck, how to not take responsibility for things, but they had no idea how to actually like take responsibility and how to actually enact change that would be beneficial. And we're seeing that continue today. You still can't buy N95 masks on Amazon. It's three months after the fact. This is a very solvable problem, but our institutions are fundamentally broken. And I think you can add that to the, the growing culture war where you have red states where a lot of people are refusing to wear masks because it's not a pandemic, it's a damn panic, this is a fake disease, really, really idiotic stuff like that. And then in blue states, you're seeing some of the elite institutions basically begin to eat themselves. The New York Times has basically been taken over by social justice warrior staffers who sort of opposed a uh, op-ed by Tom Cotton, the senator from, I think, Arkansas. And I didn't like the op-ed. It was a bad op-ed, but he's a senator, for goodness sakes. I mean, right? Like, if you're the paper of record, you should allow senators to publish sometimes, even if you don't like their arguments. And so we're seeing this this sort of, I think, deeply dysfunctional institutions combined with this deeply dysfunctional culture that will probably take decades, a generation to really sort themselves out. Um, there isn't a lot of sort of I don't know, capacity left at the seams, even in, in the late like 60s, 68, when we saw a similar social unrest, there was something solid. There was a core underneath. And I think that core is quite atrophied. So I'm, I'm a little bit um, nervous about the future of the U.S. It's interesting to me that you talk about Silicon Valley because, uh, at least from an outsider's perspective here, it amazes me, let me say, how little political influence Silicon Valley has. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I had one analogy, and I think I tweeted this, though I got a lot of pushback here and there, that I don't think, and I may be wrong about this, I don't think that the Koch brothers, for example, would have struggled to build more housing in Silicon Valley. And we have people that are vastly richer than the Koch brothers in the valley. I mean, what's going on? Why do they have so little political influence? I mean, they get railroaded even by the local government. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. Um, one of my friends likes to joke that Silicon Valley thinks they're above politics, but in fact, they're below it. Uh, you've seen, I think, Apple pledge $2.5 billion to affordable housing in the Bay Area. Microsoft, I think a billion to affordable housing in San Francisco, like Mark Zuckerberg, I think 500 million to affordable housing in the Bay Area. And like the problem is just that, okay, right, if you're spending half billion dollars to put it crassly, like just buy off the entire city council and just tell them to legalize housing. Um, and I think it's a sort of combination of historical circumstances. One is that because most of Silicon Valley is in the world of bits and not in atoms, they just haven't interacted with the government that much. So because of that, there was no need to really figure out how to work with government. It was like, you ignore us, we'll ignore you. To use the sort of Chinese proverb, the emperor is far away, um, right? It's on the other side of the country. And so they weren't really, didn't interact with the government that much. And because of that, just saw it as kind of part of the ecosystem, not something they had to pay attention to. I, I believe that is changing now. I think Mark Zuckerberg's congressional hearing like a year ago was a wake-up call where, okay, the congressmen who are asking Mark Zuckerberg, 
um, how do you turn on the iPhone? And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> when you have the political leaders who are that disconnected with what is actually going on, there is a, I think, serious challenge. That being said, it will take a number of years for Silicon Valley to actually figure politics out. There's, uh, I think, several challenges involved in that. One is Silicon Valley has a bias towards nonprofits. They figure if something is a good idea, you should be able to make money off it. But nonprofits are a kind of integral part of influencing government. The second is Silicon Valley likes things that scale. Government necessarily doesn't really scale. At least it doesn't scale in the same manner that a technology startup does. And so because of that, you have to put all of these resources in to help mobilize people, to help create a network, to help influence things. And you're unable to tell whether it's actually working for a long period of time. So with a technology startup, right, okay, you work for a year, you get product market fit. After product market fit, you grow 10% month over month for a period of like three years or something, right? Okay, for growing 10% month over month, you can see it's working. You can see something is happening. Well, with politics, right, you might pay activists on the ground, you might pay lobbyists, but it might take years before you actually see legislation that's even proposed, much less implemented. And most of Silicon Valley just doesn't really operate on those. They're not used to those time horizons. And so they're unwilling to sort of put the resources necessary to actually engage them. And then I think the third reason is that Silicon Valley is very, I don't know, it, it has a very universal mindset. So New York, if you look at New York, all the high net worth people in New York, when they donate to charity, they typically donate to New York charities. So they donate to the Met or they donate to Central Park, right? They get status by paying for things in New York City. And so you have all of these goods supported by basically the billionaire class in New York. In San Francisco, people get status by doing universal things. So the effective altruist movement, for example, is quite popular in San Francisco. But these universal things, while I think they have a great impact on humanity, because you don't get status by helping to improve housing in the city, there, there just isn't as much focus on the city itself it's a little bit neglected. And so there hasn't been this the same, I don't know, mobilization of Silicon Valley elite to coordinate to help fix the city as with New York, where the elite do spend a lot more money on, on improving the city quality of life. That's interesting. I, I hope they wake up and they get it right. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Final question, Mark. Ten years from now, if you're looking back at all these things you're working on, particularly charter cities, what do you hope to have achieved? Yeah, uh, in 10 years, I figure we probably want like three dozen or so charter cities that are either up and running or are like in advanced planning stages. In 10 years, probably a few million people living in charter cities and with the potential population to reach tens of millions. Uh, I want charter cities to be sort of understood and discussed at every world forum, like the World Economic Forum, all these like sort of highfalutin events. I want them to be part of the language. Like right now, for example, if we think about international development, there are some themes that come up all the time. I think gender equality and global warming kind of pervade every discussion, as well as randomized controlled trials. They all pervade every discussion about development. And I want charter cities to help pervade those discussions and not just pervade those discussions, but actually be improving people's lives on the ground. Yeah, that's a goal I can't get behind. Thank you very much, Mark, and I wish you all the best. Well, thank you for having me. You can subscribe to the podcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and the rest. Or you can just subscribe directly at our website, ideasontrap.com. Thank you, and see you next time.